In the early chapters of Mark's Gospel, uh, we've seen over the last couple of weeks uh, two significant um, controversies that Jesus had with the Jewish leadership uh, over the Sabbath. Uh, last week, we then stopped uh, to address in full the nature of the Sabbath. And uh, we began by looking at the Sabbath principle. Uh, we headed all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and we saw that uh, there was a pattern established by God uh, in the opening week of creation. Six days God did his creative work and then he rested on the seventh. Not that he stopped sustaining and, and caring and providentially uh, looking after his creation, but that his creative work was done. There was no creation ordinance in there. There's no Sabbath ordinance that, that followed uh, throughout history. Uh, there was no command for the people uh, from Adam onwards uh, to obey a Sabbath rest. But there was a pattern uh, there. Uh, it was one of the blessings that God set up for the first people, that uh, they would uh, not only have the blessing of an environment to live in, but they would have a pattern for how to truly thrive in this environment. It wasn't until uh, the Exodus uh, that we read about uh, in Exodus in chapter 16, 20 and then 31 in particular uh, that we see the Sabbath precept set up. It was a command uh, that the people of Israel were to then obey a Sabbath rest. Six days work, a seventh day of rest. Uh, God used that as a boundary marker to set uh, apart his people of Israel from the pagan nations. It was one of several boundary markers, uh, uh, including circumcision and the dietary requirements. It was there uh, for them to obey uh, God and to set them apart from those around. The Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant and it was to be in operation as long as the Mosaic Covenant was in operation. But we saw, as we headed into the New Testament, uh, this Sabbath perfection. We, we recognised that uh, the command that was given to the people of Israel uh, during the Exodus was actually pointing towards something far greater. That all those uh, who find themselves in Christ through faith, uh, they would experience true rest in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, 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 by being united with Christ uh, at the time um, of the end and for eternity there will be no more more work for us in the sense of there will be no more mission there will be no more preaching of, of the word trying to convict people uh, of the truth of the gospel uh, all, uh, all in that place will enjoy uh, the true rest in God's presence because of this, and because of the newness uh, of the covenant that Christ established with his death and his resurrection, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, we looked at the particularity of the Sabbath as well. We recognised that because the Sabbath and these other boundary markers were tied in uh, to, to setting apart the people of Israel from the pagan nations around them, uh, when Christ brought in the new covenant, uh, the old signs of the covenants of past were gone because in Christ he was making a new community through him uh, such that anyone who came to him in faith and repentance of their sin could become a member. Uh, the old covenants pointed towards this. The new covenant was the fulfilment. Uh, there was no need for boundary markers to divide off nationalities because uh, Jew and Gentile could participate in this wonder. We looked at uh, particularly Romans 14 where Paul uh, makes this point clear that the old boundary markers are no more. Uh, but I mentioned Galatians 4 and Paul's writing to the, the Christians in Galatia and he says this in verses 8 to 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have laboured over you in vain. 
He's writing to these Christians saying, don't go back to those old things. Those old things pointed towards the new thing that is found in Christ. Rejoice in the freedom that is in him. Christians are no no longer under the old covenants. We are under the new covenant in Christ. Because of this, Saturdays are no longer binding upon Christians as a day of rest. We still recognize God's creative work, but it's no longer a binding obligation. Under the new covenant, a new day becomes the focus. And that day is Sunday. A day to remember God's redemptive work. The day in which the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. In Romans 4.25, Paul says of Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Sunday is the day that believers gather together uh, to give praise to God for the salvation that he has achieved for us in Christ Jesus. Before the resurrection of Jesus, Sunday was of, of no major importance in the general scheme of the Jewish calendar. But the resurrection changed all of that. The Sabbath was not transferred to the Lord's Day such that we are legally bound to do certain things. No, there's no legalistic adherence here. But the church has always found Sunday to be the most appropriate day for corporate fellowship and worship. You go anywhere in the world, you go anywhere down the line of history And you will find Christians gathering together on Sunday in honour of the Lord. We do not move from one binding under the Sabbath to another binding under the Lord's Day. Yet it would seem uh, at odds to divorce ourselves from the practice of the church in the last 2,000 years if we would diminish the importance of Sunday in any way. This morning's sermon is entitled, The Blessing of the Lord's Day. Whereas last week uh, our focus was on the Sabbath itself, now our focus will be on understanding the importance of the Lord's Day. And we'll do that uh, by uh, looking at the example of the New Testament church and the development uh, as the church uh, headed out from Jerusalem. And then we'll address some practical matters to help us understand and think through issues of how we approach the Lord's Day each week in our current context. So let's delve straight in to the scriptures. And point one this morning, we see the precedent of the Lord's Day. Precedent. There is a a clear standard, a clear example set by the early church. And we're going to start this morning... Uh, by looking at that first Sunday, uh, which changed everything. So turn with me to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to stay in here for a little bit. (coughs) Luke chapter 23, and we read from verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the command. So this was the day of Jesus' death. Uh, uh, Joseph, and we know that Nicodemus was involved in this as well from other scriptures. They took the body of Jesus down from uh, the cross and, and buried him into tomb. Uh, sealed the tomb in order that they could come back after the Sabbath uh, and uh, prepare his body properly. Well, then something extraordinary happened, as we know. In chapter 24, let's read verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, 
Note that already. The first day of the week, it's changed right there. At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified on the third day, crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marvelling at what had happened. So, first thing in the morning, the first day of the week. This is Sunday right here. The women head to the tomb and they find it empty bar an angel and we know there was another angel as well telling them that the Lord's not here. He's risen. And they go back to the rest of the disciples and they think they've just gotten up a bit too early. Uh, they're not willing to believe except Peter who's, who's just amazed at this and he heads straight down. Well, this is in the beginning. This is the first first few hours of, of dawn on the first day of the week. But then what happened that afternoon, verses 13 and onwards? That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of our women, uh, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he gave an expository sermon to them that afternoon on the road. And so they drew near to the village to, to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with him. And when he was at table with them, he broke he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn with in us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. All this in the afternoon and early evening and these disciples on the road to Emmaus, they have this incredible encounter with the risen Lord <coughs> and their eyes are opened at the breaking of the bread and they rush, they race back to where the disciples are in Jerusalem. Well, let's keep going. What happens after that? 
Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Why were they startled and frightened? Because the doors were locked. Jesus had appeared through uh, the, the, the wall, the solid wall, in his glorified body. He had appeared to them. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That's incredible, isn't it? The glorified body can do things that our normal physical body cannot. But yet it is still incredibly physical. He's not just a spirit here. And while they were still uh, disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus is going to such incredible lengths here uh, to, to show them that he has a, a physical body. Uh, uh, if, he's, uh, if he doesn't have a physical body, as some attest, then he's going to such incredible lengths to, to prove otherwise or to fool them into thinking that he does. He had a piece of fish in front of him. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus has preached an expository sermon in the afternoon on the road to Emmaus. Now he's here in the upper room and he's preaching an expository sermon to his disciples. This was the first day of the week. This is Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. And what a day it was. Jesus, he appeared five times to his followers. And we know this when we, we supplement that uh, by the other four gospel, the, the other three gospel accounts. In John's gospel, he tells us that Jesus appeared to Mar- Mary Magdalene at the tomb. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us that Jesus appeared to the women on the road. And then here in Luke, Jesus has appeared to uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's also appeared to Peter. And then he's appeared to the 10 of the 11 disciples. Uh, Thomas uh, being absent and we know that Jesus, uh, Judas having died uh, several days before. This is all on the first day of the week. This is Sunday. This is Resurrection Day. Now, if we turn over to John's Gospel, in John chapter 20, from verse 24, this is a week later, tells us in these verses that eight days later, and when is that? Well, it's Sunday. The starting day is included in counting the number of days. Nothing has happened for the disciples uh, between Resurrection Day and between when Jesus appears next the following weekend. Uh, The disciples have been locked up in hiding during that time and then this is what happens. Verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came and so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands, see in his hands the mark, of the nails and place my finger into the mark of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, Sunday, the following week, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet (coughs) believed. Once again, the doors are locked. Jesus appears all this the following Sunday. 
after resurrection day, after the following weekend where he appears to Thomas and the disciples again, Acts 1 tells us that Jesus appeared many times uh, over a period of 40 days before he then physically ascended into heaven. And he also told his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And this was fulfilled in Pentecost, uh, which we read about in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is another name for the Old Testament Feast of Weeks. In Leviticus chapter 23, uh, the Israelite feasts are actually outlined for us. So if we flick back to Leviticus chapter 23, you can, you can see them in sequential order. first major feast is that of the Passover and uh, if you've got an ESV study by uh, ESV Bible you'll see those headings in the text that there's the Passover and then immediately followed uh, by the Passover is a seven-day feast of unleavened bread it's it's very much connected to that now the day after the first Sabbath in that week was known as the feast of first fruits which is spoken about from verse 9 this day after the sabbath is a sunday and it is also the day which we know christ rose from the dead now interestingly the apostle paul picks up this feast when he says in 1 corinthians 15 verse 20 but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep this this feast of the first fruits uh, was a pointer to what would happen on that first resurrection sunday well then following that in verse 15 we have the feast of weeks and let me read leviticus 23 verses 15 to 16 you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the sabbath from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So 50 days uh, from the first Sabbath uh, after Passover is a Sunday. Pentecost being the Greek uh, word for 50th. 50 days from that first Sabbath, after uh, the first Sunday after the Sabbath. It was a momentous occasion a momentous celebration this feast of weeks it was a celebration to thank god for his provision and then what better way what better moment for the spirit to arrive at pentecost in the new testament and so we know what happened in acts you can head over to acts now this first part it really is a tour through the scriptures We know in Acts chapter 2 what happened on that day. The disciples were were baptised with the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches up a storm and the crowd is cut to the heart and the church grows from 120 members to about 3,000 in one service. All this on a Sunday. The actions of the new fellowship are recorded in Acts chapter 2 from verse 42 let me just read this and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we can see at this time that the church is meeting daily. There's no set time for worship. It's happening all the time. In a sense, this is to be the reality of worship for believers. Romans 
Chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is to be a full-time pursuit. We're not to to save our praise and honour of God and and store it up for a certain time and a place each week. Uh, It is to be part of our ongoing disposition. It is to be our consistent attitude and goal. The early church was so humbled by the grace of God, so enthusiastic about proclaiming the gospel uh, to the lost, so encouraged by their fellowship uh, in the body that they could not stop from meeting uh, together. But as we look through the historic development of the New Testament church, we see that while there was, there was no prescription, there was no rule handed down, the practice of meeting together for corporate worship on a Sunday uh, began to develop. So if you flick over to Acts chapter 20... In Acts 20, we see Paul is returning back to Jerusalem from his third missionary journey. And uh, he stops in Troas and he's with Luke, uh, the one who wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And they they join in fellowship with the Christians there. And we read this from verse 7. On the first day of the week, on a Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, uh, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So Paul gathers with the believers in Troas. They have a morning service, which turns into an afternoon gathering, which turns into an evening service and continued fellowship. And then one young man, probably a teenager... Uh, Similarly, uh, getting a bit dozy from the, 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 the oil that's burning from the lamps and the, the, the time of the evening, is sitting in a windowsill, not a good place if you're a bit tired, and uh, he, he's struggling to focus, not because he doesn't want to hear, but it's just the time of the night, and he falls to his death. But is there any, like, is there any scene about this? Is there any hoo-ha or is there any uh, amazement? No, Paul just kind of stops mid-sentence. Heads down the stairs, walks outside, raises him back to life, walks back upstairs, they celebrate communion, and he goes on preaching and teaching until the wee hours of the morning and gets up and heads off to the next town. All of this on the first day of a week. All this on Sunday. At the beginning of this third missionary journey, Paul had stayed in Ephesus for about two and a half years. And then during this time, he wrote to the Corinthian church. So if you (coughs) turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we read this in the first three verses. 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And so we read in several of Paul's letters that uh, he was on a fundraising mission in part, uh, raising funds uh, for the poor uh, Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering hardship. And he recognises that the easiest way to collect funds from people is when they will be regularly gathered together on the first day of the week. There's no command here to meet, but it's just the practice that was established. 
The other reference, the final reference that we need to see is in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation in chapter 1. And we read this in Revelation 1 verses 9 to 10. I, John, says the Apostle John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so the Apostle John, he has been exiled to the island of Patmos and he's been sent there because he would not stop talking about Jesus. He's been proclaiming the gospel everywhere and has gotten him in terrible strife. And so on the Lord's day, he receives a vision of Christ walking through the lampstands, which is a reference to the churches. And the day that this happens is the Lord's day, which uh, writings in the, uh, the beginning of the second century confirm is the Sunday. So by the time that we reach the end of the New Testament era, uh, which is the mid-90s, the church has discarded the Sabbath observance and they picked up the Lord's Day observance. It's not a direct transfer. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Saturday is still the day for remembering God's creative work, but it has no binding obligation uh, for those in Christ, those under the new covenant. Whereas Sunday... Uh, although there are, is no prescription uh, for Christians to uh, legally abide by this, nonetheless, the early church saw its significance uh, in reflecting on the momentous things that occurred on Sunday. It seemed to them most natural to gather together on this day to honour the Lord as one people. Sunday became the day for remembering God's new creation, his redemptive work, uh, wrought through the first fruits of the resurrection of his son. And so here is the precedent of the Lord's day, and the scriptures are quite clear. But I want us to go even deeper this morning. I want us to see the nature of the Lord's day. Uh, We've seen the reason for it, uh, but what are we to do in it? And so point two is the purpose of the Lord's Day. Much of the confusion uh, related to whether or not the Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath uh, comes down to recognising the purposes of each. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, it is to rest from work, primarily about rest. There is also uh, the intention of reflecting on God's provision during this time. However, nowhere in the Old Testament is this reflection or worship made into a command for corporate worship. The Israelites were never commanded to gather together on the Sabbath and worship God. Evangelical scholar Craig Blomberg states that if all we had were the Hebrew scriptures, we might never guess that a day of rest eventually also became a day of worship. So what's interesting, uh, when we hear arguments supporting the Lord's Day as being the Christian Sabbath, uh, it's that uh, what was commanded in the Sabbath is now allowed on the Lord's Day. And what was never spelled out in the Sabbath is now specified as the purpose of the Lord's Day. And so what do I mean by that? Well, it's said that there's now no binding upon Christians to rest, which was the primary purpose of the Sabbath, But now there's a focus of worship, which was not spelled out concerning the Sabbath in the Old Testament. So it's not a very logical progression. It seems uh, far more consistent with the biblical witness to affirm that the purpose of the Sabbath was to rest. And that individual Israelites were to use that time to reflect on God's provision. This command pointed to the reality of what Christ would accomplish and then bring to fulfilment in the new heavens and the new earth. But the command to rest ceased with the arrival of the new covenant. It seems more consistent with the biblical witness uh, to leave the Sabbath as it was, 
and to see the development of a brand new thing in the Lord's day. And so what is the purpose of the Lord's day? It is to worship God uh, for the redemptive work achieved by Christ and through the Spirit. The weekend was only set in place uh, in the early years of the 20th century. Uh, Prior to that, Christians had to work on on Saturday and Sunday. But there is great benefit uh, to the weekend. Saturday, we can enjoy re-creation, recreation, as we enjoy God's creation. And Sunday, we gather as Christ's people to worship him as our Lord, to celebrate that by grace and through faith, We've become new creations in Christ. It's on the Lord's day that we come to renew our allegiance to the risen Saviour. We saw in Acts chapter 2 what this entailed for the early church. Uh, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, uh, to the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, and, and to prayer. Acts chapter 20 The believers gathered together the whole day and night and they broke the bread. They sat under the apostles' teaching and enjoyed fellowship together. And in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, on the Lord's Day, was the opportunity to uh, collect that merciful fund, financial support for the poor saints in Jerusalem. The 16th century reformers encapsulated these things, stating that the marks of a true church uh, were the pure preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word, the pure administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and also church discipline. All these things are imperative for the church as it gathers together to exalt the triune God and to edify one another in the faith. Paul also says in Colossians 1.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, that can be done any day, can't it? But most especially on the Lord's day. The third point to draw out this morning is the priority of the Lord's day. If the precedent was set by the early church, if the purpose is as significant as we've just seen, then we surely must come to see it as a priority. This too is made clear by the scriptures. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 10. And we read in verses 23 to 25. Hebrews 10 from verse 23. The writer says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is not a law in the sense that it is a sin to miss a week of church but it's stressing its importance. Uh, Well-known Bible teacher John MacArthur, he lamented years ago about the way the culture of the church was headed. And in a sermon about the Lord's Day and in reflection upon this verse in Hebrews, he said this, As we get closer to the return of Christ, we ought to ramp up our fellowship, not diminish it. He said, we're going the wrong way, folks. Services are shorter, more superficial and fewer at a time when they ought to be deeper, longer and more frequent. It seems to me that there are at least two uh, reasons why genuine Christians do not see corporate worship on the Lord's Day as a priority. And the first one is conflict. People, people don't want to come because they have an issue with another believer. Uh, They've been hurt and they they just don't want to put themselves through the pain of seeing that other person each week. And so it's just easier to stay away. Now, there may be legitimacy uh, to the hurt that's being felt. The other person may indeed have sinned against them and uh, is continuing to sin by not following Jesus' command in Matthew 5, 21 to 26, where he essentially says that if you know your brother or sister has something against you, Go to them and seek reconciliation. 
If you know you've done something wrong, go and apologize and ask for forgiveness. We teach that to our kids. We, we somehow forget that as we get taller. However, while the one who has sinned is in the wrong, the one who has stopped coming to church is also in the wrong because they failed to heed Jesus' instructions for when someone sins against you. Matthew 18 and verse 15, Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have saved your brother. Well, then Jesus outlines an escalation process should that sinning person not repent. But the process of church discipline happens first at the individual level. Something happens between someone and someone else. You don't go to everyone else, you go to them. Indeed, if churches were faithful at this first level, then many times it would never have to go any further than between those two people. Now, conflict is inevitable between sinners. However, if, if people are genuine Christians, justified sinners, then they are, by fact, one, united in Christ. And they are to work hard at making this a reality in practice. Now, conflict is hard. No one likes conflict. But it should not hinder the priority of meeting together on the Lord's Day. Now, if that's something that hits home for you, then I encourage you to prayerfully meditate on the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. But the second issue that I, I can see is, is that of commitment. The second reason genuine Christians don't see the Lord's Day as a priority is, is commitment. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson is a, is a Presbyterian theologian. He's a man that, that believes in the Christian Sabbath. We won't hold that against him because he makes some very helpful comments here. He says this, When Christians ask, Is it okay for me to do X on Sundays? The first response should normally be not yes or no, but why would you be doing it? The most common answer to that question is probably, Because I don't have the time for it in the rest of the week. And he goes on, The problem here is not how we spend Sunday, It's how we're using Monday to Saturday. We're living the wrong way around, as if there had been no resurrection. Let's ask, do we truly believe that Christ physically rose from the dead? Do we believe that? If so, then that should impact every sphere of our lives, and especially what we do with our time. Jesus calls his disciples uh, to be in the world, but not of the world. Yet without too much effort, we find the world infiltrating our thinking. As Christians, we can become so impacted by uh, the materialistic nature of modern secular culture that it changes our priorities. And as a result, we become too busy for church. Modern Christians try and get through church as fast as they can, so they can get on with the rest of the week. Whereas the early Christians, they longed to get through the rest of the week so they could gather together once more in the fellowship uh, with Christ's people to hear the preaching of the word, to participate in the sacraments, to say, pray, uh, sing praise and to offer prayers to our gracious creator and redeemer. Not too long ago, the entire Sunday was taken up with church matters. Uh, There was adult Sunday school, first thing. Then there was morning worship, and that included a a lengthy expository sermon, and it was filled with singing songs that were filled with uh, bursting with biblical truth. There was fellowship, and then there was uh, afternoon Bible studies or or youth uh, programs or evangelistic uh, endeavours. And then there was evening worship, which was again followed by, uh, included a lengthy expository sermon and more biblical singing. And then there was more fellowship. But the modern church has downsized all of this. In many churches, there is only the morning gathering. The the sermon is now a 10-minute think spot. Heaven forbid we actually proclaim some propositional truths from Scripture. Don't want to offend anyone. Um, 
And the whole thing is, is wrapped up in less than an hour so everyone can get on with the rest of the day. Now, is there a law about how much we should do together on a Sunday? No. No, there's not. And nor should there be. However, a lack of commitment to corporate worship affects not only the church, but it has a deep impact on the society around us. Alastair Begg uh, is a well-known uh, Scottish Scottish Baptist pastor uh, living in the US and he described on a a panel discussion uh, about 20 years ago he made this observation about how how the church's lack of commitment to the Lord's Day had affected society. He was saying that prior to the 60s it was considered an absolute waste of the government's time to try and legislate against Sunday trading Uh, because no one would have rocked up. What's the point of wasting time on making laws if if no one's going to be there anyway? But he said that the church's gradual decline of commitment opened the doors to Sunday trading as well as Sunday sports or anything else. And there's no going back now, is there? Because the floodgates have been opened. Again, we we can't uh, be legalistic about things. Paul says in Galatians 5, that is for freedom... That Christ has set us free. And yet there are moments where it's necessary to reflect about what's truly important. A Baptist theologian, Albert Moeller, he echoes Sinclair Ferguson's comments. He says this, One problem with so much of our thinking about the Lord's Day is that it is natural for us to think of it as an imposition in our otherwise busy schedule. And yet we are to be faithful to gather together making it a priority of our lives to be with God's people. And as we are with fellow believers, we gather together to prepare for eternity, to be confronted by the word of God, to edify one another, and to yearn for that eternal rest that is promised to us by the grace and mercy of God. So that's the priority. There's one final point I wish to briefly raise, so we can get out of here. And that is the propriety of the Lord's Day. Propriety means uh, conformity to established standards of good or proper behaviour or manners. There's an established set of standards. So let me ask, whose day is Sunday? It's the Lord's. It's the Lord's day. It belongs to Him. And as such, He sets He determines what is appropriate behaviour in our worship of him. Baptist pastor and theologian Mark Deaver, he made this observation into his own context several years ago. He said this, We make the assumption today as evangelicals in America that casualness is the height of intimacy. And in the Bible, that's not true. When you encounter the God of the Bible, you are reverent. Because you're aware that you're in the presence of the one who created you and who will judge you. And I think that in our own preaching, in our own considering how we plan our worship services, that's fundamental and it's often overlooked. As Christians, we rightly rejoice in the intimate and personal relationship that we can have with God through Christ and by Christ. Only in Jesus, only by faith in his person and work can we approach the throne of grace with confidence. Can we call God Father? Yet at the same time, it's crucial to realise that God is not only imminent in his nature, he is also transcendent. The triune God is transcendent. He is above all. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And all that's said of the Father's nature is equally true of the Son's nature and indeed the Holy Spirit's nature as well. The corporate worship of a church says a great deal about what that church understands of the nature of the Lord. We're told in Philippians 2, words we sang earlier this morning, that because of Christ's atoning death, his humble submission to the cross. Verse 9, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has the name that is above every name. And may this truth fix itself deep in our hearts and in our minds that we may approach the Lord's day with great reverence. Now you may have noticed uh, there's been a lot of quotes from Baptist pastors and theologians this morning and that's not by accident. It's to show you that concern for the Lord's day is not some sort of liturgical church influence uh, that I'm trying to to foist into a, a church like ours that has Baptist origins. No, concern for the Lord's day has been the desire of all faithful Christians throughout history right back to the early church. For 2,000 years, Christians have gathered together on Sunday in honour and praise of our Lord Jesus, whose death and resurrection secured salvation for his people, for all those who would come to him in repentance and faith. The Lord's Day is not about adherence to law. It is about adoration of the Lord. And until he returns, or until he calls us home, we will continue to worship him all the days of our lives, and especially on Sundays, the Lord's Day, as we unite with other members of his body. Let's pray. Dear Father, we give you praise and thanks for the blessing of the Lord's Day. On Sunday, we recognise every single week the work of redemption that you have achieved in the death and resurrection of your Son. Father, we recognise your creative work on a Saturday, a time for us as Christians to uh, experience recreation and enjoy the wonders of your work. And yet we recognise the importance of gathering together uh, in one name, Uh, on a Sunday to bless you, to worship you, to praise you, to come under the preaching of the word and to offer prayer to you, our God who has redeemed us through the work of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. May you help us individually and collectively as your people here uh, to be challenged to to think uh, more deeply about the importance and significance of this day significance that has uh, impacted your people uh, throughout the line of history. And we pray these things in our precious Lord's name.